three laugh songs above the den. It's hard to know if this will be the day when you give in. Give in. Hello and welcome to episode 390 of the Thinking Poker podcast from Catonsville, Maryland. I am Andrew Brookes. And from Cherokee, North Carolina, I'm Carlos Welch. How are things going in Cherokee, Carlos? Pretty good. Pretty good. I've been out of my room once <laughs> since <laughs> I've been here. Uh, so today's Thursday. I got here on Sunday. And um, um, my buddies, um, Briar and Rusk, um, came up on Sunday to play the senior event. And so I went out to um, discuss um, how it went for them after the event and also um we had lunch or dinner, uh, it must have been dinner uh we had dinner and then um breakfast the next morning as they were heading out but yeah besides that I, I didn't i haven't done much yet so because sunday when i got here was basically my football and um online poker day so i did that from the room and then once i was done with all of that I went down and hung out with those guys, and I believe I, I went and played a um, a cash game and also a single table sit and go that night. But besides that, I didn't do much on Sunday. I did go out on Monday night in late reg, whatever that event was. I think it was a four hundred dollars six max, and I was able to um, jump into that uh, last minute with like fifteen big blinds and like. Two or three hours later, I was in the money, uh, and there was other people complaining about having played eight hours or whatever, and they didn't cash. <laughs> so that was nice. I was going to say too, because I imagine some people might be sort of um, surprised to hear that you you would like go to Cherokee and pay for a hotel room and stuff, and then not have um, not have done that much there. But you know, this is one of the upsides of uh, not having a house or apartment or whatever. Is that like? <laughs> paying for a hotel room is not necessarily like it's not an added cost because you're not paying rent on top of that. Exactly. So the way I view it is that this is a mini vacation from my vacation. Um, so I've been <laughs> home from Vegas um, for about a month. So I've been back in Atlanta for the holidays for about a month. And there's only so much time I can um, spend with family at some point. The fact that they don't play poker <laughs> becomes an issue. And the fact that I don't like watch the news or whatever they do becomes an issue. So after about you know two or three weeks, we uh, run out of things to talk about. So I'm taking a vacation from my holiday vacation back up to this um, hotel in Cherokee, which uh, actually is what I would be doing if I wasn't home for the holidays. I would be in a hotel room in a casino. I'm just doing it on the east side of the country as opposed to the west side. So yeah, for me, this kind of feels like my normal life. I'm just coming to a hotel room and not leaving it. Nice. Uh, so we've got for today's episode, um, we're, we're, we're hoping to do, and our plan is always, you know, do X quickly and quickly doesn't always pan out because we have a lot to say, but, uh, we have from our, uh, Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash thinking poker daily. Um, we have a bunch of hands uh, that we just haven't gotten to on, on the regular show. So some of you know, we have like tiers of, uh, of, of subscription and depending on like in, in the higher tiers, one of the benefits of being in a higher tier is your hands get 
priority. So the thing has become so popular that a lot of people in the $5 tier, like it's pretty hard to get your hand uh, on. So what we're planning on doing today is just blowing through, um, you know, a bunch, you know, maybe like, I don't know, three to five <laughs> hands or questions from some of those people who have not had a chance to uh, get their hands on the Thinking Poker Daily show, but uh, who are subscribers and supporters there, which, you know, this actually, the timing is coincidental, but we did just pass our two-year anniversary for Thinking Poker Daily. So happy anniversary, Carlos. Thank you. Happy anniversary, happy anniversary to you as well. Um, and, you know, there's, there's a nice opportunity for people who have not already. Uh, it really is, is a lot of fun. I think that the strategy content is very good, but we have a lot of fun recording them. I think people have fun listening to them. It's just a nice way to get like a daily dose of uh, poker strategy into your day. Uh, and you can sign up for that at patreon.com slash thinking poker daily. The other upside of doing that now is that you'll also be entered into a drawing to win uh, a free starter membership at GTO Wizard, who are uh, also the sponsors of this podcast now. So we give uh, two away, two of those away each episode. One goes to a randomly selected person from our uh, top tier of super nits. And, uh, and then one is drawn from uh, all patrons at large. So you have a shot at that no matter which tier you are in. And, uh, you know, the, the, the biggest benefit is you get the uh, 10 to 15 minutes of poker strategy from Carlos and me uh, three to five days a week. Yeah. And you know what? You reminded me of something with our anniversary being around um, Thanksgiving. This gives us a great opportunity to uh, express how thankful we are to Nate for even having an idea to start thinking poker daily. So every year around this time, I'll, I'll think about Nate. True fact. Yeah. I started to say uh, that Nate is no longer with us, but that sends the wrong message. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. He is uh, still wandering the earth, to my knowledge, but uh, is... is yeah, it just doesn't have a lot of time to be doing thinking book of dailies anymore. Yes. Um, all right. Shall we, shall we dive into it? Yes. And start at the bottom. Uh, yes. Let's do that. <clears throat> okay. So first off we have a hand from Duncan. Um, this hand is in tournament 144. <laughs> oh, <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to go just... to the first one. Okay, cool. Cool. Perfect. Um, 144 players left, 39 spots from the money. And this is a very useful uh, just bit of context to have, by the way. Simply telling us how many spots you are from the money doesn't... Um, doesn't mean very much. We have to know also how many people are remaining in the tournament. So the difference of like, if we're three spots off the money and there's a thousand people in the tournament, well, you're extremely close. And in fact, like probably the bubble will be over this hand versus if you're three spots off the money and there's only 10 people in the tournament, like the bubble could go on for hours. So it, it really makes a massive difference. Uh, in this case, we're like starting to get close to the, the money, not super close yet. Uh, Hero has 17.5 big blinds on the button. The under the gun, who is a tough player with a large stack, I'm going to assume a larger stack than the hero's limps. And now the question is, should our hero uh, raise less than all in or just shove? I'm jamming all day here. Um, I'm jamming and I'm, uh, uh, you know what, 39 left. Uh, 140, so 39 spots from the money. If there's 144 left as you approach the bubble, what size would you get? This, this is at least like a thousand player field, probably 1500, 2K. Pretty big field. Uh, probably like a thousand player field. So 
Um, yeah, I think I'm jamming here, and I, honestly, I don't even want to call. Kings feels a little too strong. Like I, I'm certainly like Ace King. I'm jamming Jax. I feel like with Kings, you still want to in, in, invite a little bit more action. Um, among other things, like I don't think I want to play a strictly jammer fold strategy in this spot. Right? Like if I have, I don't know, Ace Jack. I think I might prefer three Xing to to jamming. So I think that that kind of makes me want to do that with my very best hands. You know, my aces, and my kings, also. Yeah, I can see that. This is one of those spots where I think each player has to decide how much they care about cash in this tournament. And uh, I would say, and, I, and I'm, I'm not 100% sure here, but I feel like this is going to be like a thousand player tournament, right? It's hard for me to... Yeah, it seems like about 100 people are going to get paid. Yeah, so I, so I feel like we'll probably get into money in like an orbit or two. And if I double here, is that going to allow me to like abuse the bubble? I'm imagining if we go to like 35 big blinds, that's not going to be chip lead at the table. So um, I can see, I, I feel like what you're saying is optimal, but I know myself being um, someone who's has, has accepted that I'm not going to um, play like an elite player all the time. I think this is why I'm just happy to take it down and I'll make my move after I get into the money. Cause I think that's going to happen to like an orbit or two. Um, yeah, but I think that's a nice way of, of you know, breaking down what, what the trade-offs are is essentially by, by raising less than all in what you're doing is you're inviting additional variants. Like it's more likely that you're going to play after the flop and end up saying a showdown uh, and in the interest of winning more chips. And at most stages of the tournament, I would say it would be a no-brainer that you want to um, make that that trade-off. Like, or earlier in the tournament, I should say, it would be a no-brainer that you want to make that that trade-off. But um, you know, as you start to get closer to the money, variance becomes more of a concern, increasing your chance of survival and just trying to, you know, even if the pot that you win is fairly small, just like consistently winning pots, not losing chips, not putting yourself in a position to get eliminated, it does start to become a more, more important as you get closer to the bubble. And that's the, the trade-off that we're sort of debating here. Right. Okay. So thank you, Duncan. Next question is from Ben. Ben says, hi, Andrew. I guess there's an implied Carlos there as well. <laughs> really enjoyed Thinking Poker Daily 419. You said you could talk at length about splitting bluffs post-flop across polarized and condensed ranges, and I was hoping that you would do so. Okay, so this is why it's addressed to me, because it's in response to a specific comment that I made. Yeah. Uh, I'm particularly interested in your thoughts about which bluffs fit into a condensed range. I come at this with a perspective from PlayOptimal Poker that the smaller the size of the bet, the fewer, the fewer bluffs you get to have. And if I understand the Thinking Poker Daily episode correctly, one takeaway was that condensed or uh, smaller bluffs care about the viability of hands on the river. And so uh, hands that don't fit so well into polarized ranges are hands that if they improve on the river uh, would have trouble continuing to play for value because of the way that they've already strengthened the opponent's range. I like that heuristic and I find it useful, but I wonder whether all the hands that meet this criteria are fit to be included in the condensed range. Are there any characteristics of a hand uh, beyond just not fitting well into a polarized range that make a good candidate to include it within a condensed range as a bluff. So there's, um, I, I guess I, even I was having a little trouble um, understanding exactly what this question was. So I want to clarify for people first. Um, the, the general idea here is that there are uh, 
often on on the turn in particular, sometimes even on the flop, you will have different bet sizes, at least if you're in looking at like a solver sort of strategy, you'll have different bet sizes. And generally, your larger bet sizes are going to be more polar. So the larger bets are going to be more your very best hands, and then also some some very, very poor hands. And then the smaller bets tend to be, I mean, A, they're more value-oriented. You don't get to have as many bluffs when you're using a smaller bet size. And um, even the bets that, that you do have, uh, a lot of them are sort of they're kind of per semi bluffs and protection bets and hands that don't slot quite as clearly into like, well, this is, you know, very close to the nuts or very close to the anti nuts, like very close to a zero equity hand. And so uh, Ben's question is about how do you decide which hands go into that, that latter category? Like when, when you're not making a super polar bet, how do you uh, decide which hands belong in that category? Um, and I think that the the main the main way that I encourage people to think about this, I don't know if this is going to map perfectly into what a solver is doing, but I think in terms of a heuristic that you can use fairly easily with your human brain, um, I think you're looking for hands that are benefiting from both calls and folds. You're looking for hands that. Uh, can cause your opponent to fold some equity. So that, I mean, the, the classic examples of this are, are a semi bluff and a protection bet. Or so a semi bluff is, uh, you know, you're betting like a draw or something and you, your, your hand currently does not have much chance of winning unimproved, but there is some way you can improve to like a straight or a flush or maybe even your pair outs are, are live. Uh, so you're happy, like any fold that you get, like you might just have 10 high. So even if your opponent folds a fairly bad hand, like jack high or queen high, they're still folding a lot of equity, like maybe more than 50% equity, even though from their perspective, the hand is, is fairly bad. Um, but then when your opponent doesn't fold, you're not dead in the water either because opponents aren't going to fold real often to small bets. So, you know, you want to have some chance of, of winning when the bet is called. And um, yeah, so, so like, you know, draws fall nicely into that category. And then protection bets are sort of like the the flip side of that. <laughs> These are hands that are, um, there's a fair chance they're currently the best hand. You're not necessarily expecting to be in great shape when you're called. This, depending on the situation, could be like top, top pair with a not very good kicker it could be second pair it could be an under pair to top pair you know like pocket nines on a jack eight six flop um some hands where it is still you're not going to make your opponent fold a better hand than yours so it's not a bluff but you can make them fold like one or two over cards maybe you can make them fold a gut shot or a pocket pair that has a chance of drawing to a set like you're making them fold some amount of equity usually less than 50 percent equity but you're also not in bad shape when you're called um, so you might sometimes get called by a hand that's worse than yours. Like when you bet nines on, on the Jack eight, six, sometimes you'll get called by a straight draw or by an eight or by a six. So it's not like your hand is, is dead in the water when it's called. Um, that's, that's the sort of thing that I'm generally looking for, for a, a more condensed betting range. And then the bigger bets are either like the extremely strong hands that really don't want folds, but do want to put as much money into the pot as they can. And then also the extremely weak hands that really, really don't want to get called um, and are going to be in very bad shape when they're called, but benefit tremendously from folds. Right. And I think the other thing with the um, the polarized betting range, uh, the weak hands benefit from folds and they also don't mind having to fold if they get raised, where if you have there's some hands in a condensed range that you don't want to bet because if you bet and get raised and have to fold, that would really suck. So, yeah. And and I'll, and I'll, obviously the strong hands kind of want to get raised. Um, so that's another um, aspect of the uh, polarized range there. 
Yeah, there's actually a, a tricky thing that happens here because if if you were to follow, and like part of why I made that caveat earlier about this isn't going to map perfectly under what a solver does. If you were to just follow a very simple um, heuristic, like what I just mentioned of, okay, I just, if I have the nuts or the nut low, I make huge bets. And then when I have like semi-bluffs and protection bets, I make smaller bets. The the counter strategy then for your opponent would be to raise your smaller bets. Right? Like smaller betting range is full of hands that um, do fairly well when called, but hate getting raised. Right? If you have nines on the the jack eight six flop, you hate getting raised. <laughs> if you have a ten nine on jack eight five, getting raised is also pretty bad. So. Um, what what you end up getting incentivized to do is to also include some traps in that smaller betting range. Some of your really nutty hands go into that smaller betting range um, because your opponent has incentive to raise it. Now there's also some reason to include some really nutty hands in that small betting range uh, that are actually hoping to induce a raise from the opponent, either a thin value raise or or a bluff. And then you you win you know, more money with with those very strong hands. Depending on the stack depth, you might also sometimes shove over that raise as a semi bluff. So it was when you have the the flush draw or whatever, you recognizing that your opponent has some incentive to raise that small bet light, you might then jam over the top of, of that raise. Those are kind of the two um, counters to an opponent uh, potentially exploiting you in that way. Yeah. And, and the most common example of that would be like top set, a hand that's strong enough to call the raise, but also blocks its value targets. Yeah. It's a lot less likely your opponent could call a large bet when you have top set. So you're less incentivized to make the large bet. Uh, thank you, Ben. Our next question comes from Playman or Plemon. Um, this hand was played uh, nine-handed in the 100-200 level of a 500-hour tournament at the, uh, he says, the Rock Hard Casino. <laughs> I mean, the Hard Rock Casino. <laughs> um, I don't know. Uh, the Hard Rock Casino in Cincinnati. The starting stack is 20K, and we have 22.6. So, sounds like you're off to a good start. Uh, either way, over 100 big blinds. Our hero is in the big blind with Queen-10 suited. Uh, the two main villains in the hand are Under the Gun, who is quite loose passive and covers me. And the small blind, who seems good, maybe a bit too loose aggressive, but I haven't seen him show down anything out of line. He has 17K. Uh, under the gun limps, middle position limps, cutoff limps, small blind completes, and now our hero is in the big blind with queen 10 suited. Again, we are over 100 big blinds deep. Do you want to raise here? Yes. This is awesome. this is one of this is one of those hands that I think about you every time I get in these spots because I used to not. I, I raise think about you thinking about me every time these spots come. <laughs> yeah, I think about the compromise we made. I don't know if you remember the compromise. Uh, you convinced me that it was really important to raise these hands when you're deep because otherwise, if you make a good hand, it's going to be hard to get all in pre. But then um, if you're shallow, then sometimes you can choose not to raise the uh, worst of these hands. Something like a, um, I don't know, I think you were encouraging me to raise stuff like Queen Jack offsuit in these spots. And I like, Ugh, I hate raising these sort of hands because I just lose so often post-flop when I don't hit well. Uh, I've never had a problem raising hands like this one in Queen 10 suited because it just plays so well post. Um, it just hits more often. But it's like the ones that you know are probably pretty good raises now, but they kind of suffer when you uh, um, when you see the flop. 
Um, those are the ones that I rather not bloat the pop from out of position with. But you, you basically told you the way you convinced me to even raise those hands is like, okay, if you're deep, you kind of need to raise those hands because they're going to make one pair and you'd rather have a low SPR when that happens. And if you don't hit, you can just check full. And I was like, really? You can just give up like that. And I was like, oh, that just made my life so much easier to know that I could raise, get four callers, because that's what happens in these sort of games. And if you missed a flop, just check four. That was such a weight off my back. So thank you for that. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, yeah, I think that this this kind of hand is a, like if we think about raising Queen 10 suited versus Queen Jack off suit, the deeper we are, the more I'd rather have the Queen 10 suited. And at like, I don't know, 30 or 40 big blinds or something where we're going to have a very low SPR if we raise and get called, then the Queen Jack. I mean, I, honestly, I think Queen 10 suited would always be better than Queen Jack off suit because they're almost the same hand in terms of high card value and I'd rather be suited. But uh, I don't know, compared to like King Queen off suit or something that's like a little bit better high card value, um, the, I, I would rather have this than King Queen off suit at the stack depth i would probably raise both but um i would rather have this agreed uh hero raises to 1600 which i think is like kind of the smallest size I and mean, i know it seems big it's like eight times the the raise but honestly like i wouldn't hate it if you made it 3000 here <laughs> like just take no matter what you have and unless you have exactly aces like if you have ace king if you have pocket kings queens whatever just having all these limpers like there's a thousand tips in this pot already so like just having all those players fold and, and you take it down rather than you having to play deep stacked out of position um is, is a very nice outcome and of course it's also a nice outcome when you have queen 10 suited what you're really doing with this raise is just abusing the fact that these people are probably just limping bad hands. Like when you see people limping in the first level of uh, you know $500 tournament, they're probably just not great players and they're playing way too many hands and their ranges are very capped. They're not, even if they like occasionally limp bases or something, like they mostly just have bad hand. They probably don't even have very many hands that dominate Queen 10 suited. So like, even if they do, even if you raise the 3000 and get called, I still don't think you're in bad shape. Like truthfully, I think like you're still just going to be up against pocket sixes or something pretty often. Um, so I really don't think there's a lot of downside to using a big size and winning the blinds immediately is very, very, very good or winning the limps immediately. Right. Uh, under the gun, small blind, who are the two previously described villains, the one who's loose passive, and then the small blind who's described as maybe being more loose aggressive. They both call. And the flop is ace of hearts, seven of clubs, four of clubs. Our hero has queen ten of clubs. I would say this is a no-brainer bet. I mean, this is a big part of what you're setting up by making this pre-flop raise is you're, you know, because you know you're going to want to, you're going to benefit from playing your draw aggressively. If you flop a draw, Queen 10 suited flops a lot of draws. And you started to tell that story about having a big hand. You started to tell that story pre-flop with your big raise. So now you come down, you flop the draw, you can, you know, ace king, ace queen, ace jack. These are all hands we would play this way. So you can represent that you have those and just, you know, come out, come out betting. Uh, our hero bets 2000 into 5200. Um, I think I like this size. This feels like a size where, you know, I don't think we're getting anyone off of an ace. And I think if they don't have an ace, they're mostly folding to that like you know i think we get a lot of like king jack offsuit kind of hands to to fold um i think i'm pretty on board with this size yeah i was looking at it and i was thinking to myself this is probably that type of like theoretically correct size given a multi-way pot that you tend to like so like whenever i think about these situations i think third pot and this is just above that so this seems good to me mm -hmm. and you know I, I think some people's instinct here might be to bet a lot bigger like 3500 or 4000 and i would encourage you to think about what what are you 
getting for that extra risk. So like you're paying twice as much, right? I mean, yes, you will get more folds if you bet 4,000. If you bet 2,000, will you get twice as many folds? Because you're paying twice as much. Uh, like I would argue this is a more efficient bet. You're getting more fold equity for your money. And if you think about what are the hands where it makes a difference, like what are the hands that might fold to the larger size? A lot of them are hands that you don't hate getting called by anyway. Pocket sixes, eight, seven of diamonds. You'd rather they folded, but your hand has quite good equity against those. You might barrel them out on later streets anyway. It's really not that big of a deal when you have a, a draw this premium. It's really not that big of a deal to get called by the, the bottom part of your opponent's range, like the hands that might otherwise fold if you'd made a larger size. Um, actually, this is a good example of what we were talking about earlier, betting a, a less condensed, you know, or sorry, betting a more condensed uh, sort of hand because we're, you know, you're using the smaller size. We have a more condensed betting range. This is a good example of a hand that slots nicely into a smaller betting range where as your opponent's calling range gets wider, your equity gets better. It's more likely that you can win the pop just by hitting a queen or a 10 than if you'd made a larger size. Yeah. And also, if you keep that range weaker, um, that's good for you when you barrel um, the second bet because uh, you just win a bigger pot. It, like if they call you a pocket sixes here and then it turns an overcard to those um, sixes, which it often will be, even if you don't hit it, it's a scare card for them. And so you just end up winning a bigger pot than if they just folded to the flop bet. Yep. Uh, so our hero bets 2,000 and 5,200, which I think is great. Under the gun calls. And now the small blind, who again is the player described as maybe being a bit too loose aggressive, raises to 6,000. Uh, I like this a lot. Our correspondent says, uh, I doubt small blind has any bluffs with this sizing. And I, I don't know how much it's the sizing versus just the situation, but even so like we have this background read, this person might be a little too loose aggressive, but this does not strike me as a situation where they're being too loose aggressive. So like, despite that read, I think this raise is very strong. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, and Playman also says, I don't see him doing this with ace-x of clubs because his limp preflop makes ace-king unlikely and I block ace-queen. Um, calling seems much better for him with that sort of hand. I put him primarily on pocket fours, pocket sevens, ace-seven or ace-four, which would be the sets in two pairs. Uh, that all sounds right to me also. Our hero calls and the under-the-gun player calls as well. The turn is the jack of hearts. There's now um, 23K in the pot. And the small blind villain moves all in for 9,700. So our hero has queen 10 of clubs, which means that he's also picked up a gut shot straight draw on the turn. So now has a gut shot and a flush draw. Um, now I'm thinking the pair out is probably not live. I <laughs> just hit a, hit a queen or a 10. Uh, the, the villain, though, is, is shoving 9,700 into 23K. Uh, and Playman says, ignoring under the gun for now, I would need 22.8% to call. Against a set, I have 22.7%. Against two pair, I have 25%, which would make it close but a call. In game, I figured that under the gun is somewhat likely to add money to the pot and not that likely to have me dominated. So his presence makes the situation even more plus EV. I would mostly just think under the gun's not very likely to overcall the shove period. Um, I don't think it's too likely that under the gun is slow playing something. You know, I think once he had the opportunity to raise again, like even if he slow played, uh, you know, if he, if he had pocket sevens, for instance, he slow plays when you bet the flop once under the gun check raises and you call at that point, I would think he probably just shoves with the sevens. I mean, there's a pretty obvious draw that like one of you is likely to be on. So I, I, I would, I don't really expect to see much, many slow plays from under the gun. So I guess I agree. Like, I don't think he's really taking much equity away from us. Um, mostly I would expect that he's just going to fold after, after, we call this 
Right. Uh, that's not what happens, though. <laughs> Our hero calls, <laughs> and now under the gun raises all in, which uh, is not a lot more, maybe like 5K more. Um and our hero says, I hate it because A, I didn't even think about it as a possibility. And B, my last 5,300 is only getting matched by one player who is surely ahead of me. Um, I, you have my permission to not have thought about this. Like I just, I mean, I knew that this was coming, but I, I not knowing that I wouldn't have expected it either. Um, it, I think there's plenty of reason to think this player does not actually have a hand to shove with. My guess now is um, Ace Jack is probably his most likely hand, where you know he didn't have a hand that he considered good enough to jam on the flop, and then he picked up two pair. And now, honestly, like I'm still not sure I would love Ace Jack in his shoes, but um, I'm not surprised you know if he was going with it. So that would be my guess for him. And yeah, I, that... I just looked ahead and see if that is, is what he had, but I did not know that one. I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's the hand that makes the most sense for sure. So the, the main questions that our correspondent had were uh, whether he should have checked for a free card. Uh, definitely not on the flop. I think that's like one of the main things you're you're trying to set up with this pre-flop raise is betting the flop. Um, I guess that was the the main question. Um, but no is the answer. <laughs> you should not have checked the flop. This is a very unlikely, uh, a very unlucky and unlikely situation. And um Unfortunately, the small blind did have sevens and our hero did not get there. But the fact that like we're not dead in the water against sevens is like part of why we're playing this hand. Like, the fact that we actually have a decent chance of drawing out on on sevens, like that's one of the virtues of making this play with this hand and you know not having King Queen offset. Right. Right. This is more or less a cooler. Yep. Uh so thank you, Playman. Better luck next time. Next up, we have a question from Kevin. You want to bring this one in? Yep. So this is Kevin who played this hand in a, five, a 50 NL six max cash game on ignition. Uh, so in this hand, the under the gun player folds, hijack limps, um, and hero is in the cutoff with ace three suited, ace three of clubs, and he makes it $2, which is going to be four big blinds. Um, button three bets to... Uh, $5.50, small blind calls, big blind falls, and uh, I guess the limper falls. And now the actions on the hero probably have a decision here between calling or four betting. And I don't know, it's been a while since I played 50 and L. I'm not expecting most uh, players to be that aggressive in button shoes. So I probably would just call here, but I bet you if you look on a solver, this hand would four bet at some frequency. Uh, what are your thoughts on this spot? My main thought is I think you're not going to find this spot in any like solve preflop range. I don't think people are running solves that have yeah. the button open, the people open limping the button. So um, I'm not going to worry too much about that part. Uh, mostly I want to raise larger in hero shoes the first time around. I want to be at like I want to make it $4 when I raise rather than two, uh, which I guess the same theme from the, pre it's so nice being able to actually reference the previous hand. Cause when we record the thinking <laughs> poker dailies, we do record them. Uh, we'll record like 10 at a time. Um, but we know that you don't listen to them. And in fact, not everyone has access to everyone. So we can't just be like, just like in that last hand we discussed, cause like not everyone actually heard that. But this time I actually can say that just like in the previous hand, when you're raising out of the blinds versus limpers, you really want to go big. So I would have liked, I mean, obviously it would have worked out even less well, here if the button had then three bet us but the point is you don't expect that to happen like it's surprising that the button is three betting here which is part of why you can get away with using this large raise size because most people don't three bet in the button shoes 
So let, let's just recap the action here. So it starts with a hijack limp. I'm sorry. I, yeah, I, I missed that. I was thinking the button open limp. You're right. Yeah. So hijack limps week four exit from the cutoff. Are you on board with that, or would you? Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, I was. I was. I did misread the action. I was thinking our hero was in the blinds. Gotcha. Um, so just to catch everybody back up, um, hijack limps. We four x from the cutoff. Big blind three bets and small no, button, blind call. Button three bets. Button three bets. Yes. Yes. Uh, button three bets and then small blind calls and the limper folds and now the action's back on us. Actually, I've forgotten about that small blind caller. That might incentivize us to... Nah, that's a pretty strong range. Yeah, I'm just calling here. Honestly, I think there's a fair chance a sovereign would fold this spot. I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> I knew it. These cash ranges are just so tight, man. I don't uh, think... I think even in a tournament, we might see a fold here. The thing is, the... um. These overcalls in multi-way spots, uh, there's a lot of concern about domination, and you know, and ace axes is going to be dominated. So I'm not saying that you should necessarily fold in real life because the small blinds calling range is obviously this guy's at 57-0. So like the small blinds calling range is obviously not like what a solvers would expect it to be, but. I think the sovereign is expecting that small blind cold call range to be quite strong and uh, is going to be very cautious in your shoes with uh, potentially dominated hands. The fact that we have like straight and flush potential with such a low SPR is not going to matter that much. You know, a low SPR spot is mostly going to be about how good is the pair that you make. And this hand does not make good. Well, the three does not make a good pair. And the ace, it makes an often dominated pair. Ah, uh, see, this is great because my first thought is. I'm not really trying to make a pair. I'm calling this hand with the nut flush potential for the nut flush potential, but you just open my eyes to the fact because this because the small blind is in the pot that is now bloated. And so making this draw on with this lower SPR is going to be less valuable. Where if it were, if we were only up against the button three bet, then I think calling this hand would be more defensible. Yeah, that's right. Um, so what actually happens here is that hero does call. Um, and we go to the flop and we see seven of clubs, three of diamonds, four of clubs. Once again, hero has ace, three of clubs. So bottom pair, the nut flush draw, uh, um, small blind checks, hero checks and the button bets $8 into a pot. It's going to be around a half pot bet, I think. Small blind calls and hero decides to just jam here. I don't have a problem with that. <laughs> what are your thoughts? It's probably overkill. I don't know, because the SPR is low. Yeah, it's probably just straight up. Yeah, right. I think it's only like a pot size trace. Um it's a little well, so let me let me can I just give the results because I think it's a little bit yeah. relevant. Um so what ends up happening is the hero does shove and gets called by uh jacks in the buttons hands and by eights in the small blinds hands. So they both have over pairs. Um I would say the small blinds call is very bad, but you know, that's why they're fifty seven zero. Like I think it's it's <laughs> so likely that someone has a better over pair. Um but it's his call it great for you. Basically, those those pocket eights are um 
like this hand is just you racing against the jacks and the eights is just contributing free money. <laughs> like, <laughs> like the, the eights are affecting your equity barely at all. The only way it matters to you that those eights, because you have to hit a flush or an ace in order to beat the guy with jacks anyway. And if you do that, you're also going to beat the guy with eights unless, you know, if he makes the set, obviously your ace is no good. Or if he runs out of full house, then your flush is no good. But both of those things are quite unlikely. So basically the, the guy with the ace is just contributing dead money. And the fact that he was willing to do that anyway, like there was, you know, in this case, the shove worked out fine. The danger of shoving would be that you know if, if you did cause the small blind to fold and they had a hand that might have put money in if you hadn't raised the flop or something like that would be the main downside of raising i think i think it's unlikely that you're going to take the pot down altogether with a shove it, it seems too likely that um someone has something and the spr is so low i don't think you're taking the pot down with the shove, you are avoiding a spot where your opponents play perfectly on later streets. In other words, if the turn is not a club, they might shove and, and, um, versus if the turn is a club, then maybe they don't pay you off or something like there can be some reasons why you actually benefit from just getting all in with your big draws on the flop. But I think that's, that's sort of an edge case. So the, the main thing I would think about is how likely am I to push out the small blind and how much, how likely is that to hurt me? Like, is there a way that I can keep the small blind around sort of, um, contributing money to the pot without really taking a lot of equity away from me? Uh, you know, in, in this case, it worked out fine just by shoving, which, you know, with a guy being 57 zero, um, that probably is the way to go. Let's just assume he's probably coming along <laughs> with a lot of the hands you want him to come along with anyway. Yeah. Cause if you think about, how strong that flat from the small blind should be is going to be a lot of like big cards and pairs. And if he's the type that's not going to go away with the pairs, which are almost all over pairs in this case, uh, you definitely want to just jam because he's, he's not going to continue with the big cards no matter what you do. So, um, well, that's the end of this hand. Um, thank you to forget the name Kevin. our correspondent kevin for writing uh um this is not the regular thinking poker daily so i don't need to do the, <laughs> the outro um so we'll just move to another hand if we have time yes um this hand is coming from mckenzie who asks how do you adjust shoving ranges late in tournaments based on the big blinds chip stack when uh short stacked do your opponent's icm for example if you have eight big blinds remaining there's five players left in tournament are you shoving a wider range from the cutoff against the 50 big blind stack or from the hijack against the 12 big blind stack how much is the adjustment if any so essentially what he's saying i think is you know if we assume that um generally like if if we kept all factors equal of course we would shove wider from the cutoff than we would against than we would from the hijack um but is it the case that like if the hijack um if we're in the hijack and big blind only has 12 big blinds are they so much less likely to call us than a player with 50 big blinds that we might actually want to shove wider even though our position is less good if it gives us the opportunity to shove into the the stack of a player who we can actually threaten with our eight big blinds i think so um, basically, the answer to this question is we need to estimate our fold equity. So uh, in general, you can assume that a big stack is going to call wider than a shorter stack. Um, and, and having that extra player uh, between us, between our position and the big blind, I would say that that doesn't do enough, in my opinion, to make me not want to choose a wider range against the shorter player and the big blinds. So, yeah, I think I would jam, I honestly think I would jam wider from the hijack in this scenario 
than I would from the cutoff, which is um, a little bit counterintuitive. Yeah, I will say I think the best way, to, uh, and I would encourage our correspondent to do this, not only because I'm lazy, but also because I think it will be to their benefit to do it. Um, I mean, this is a, an experiment that you can set up pretty like with these exact parameters, or you can you can change some of the parameters and see how that affects things. I think this is exactly how you want to use tools like ICMizer, not just to look up you know, should I have shoved this one hand that I played in a tournament two weeks ago or whatever. Like the, you're never going to encounter that exact spot again. But it's to help you answer questions like this. So you know, you chose an extreme example of what if the big blind has fifty versus what if they have twelve, and you know those are all variables that you can you can play around with and start to get a sense of what are the factors. I mean, you have a sense of what the factors are. And really your question is like, how do they interact with each other? So knowing that the big blind has less incentive to, to call you when they're shorter, like how much does that um, contribute to your shoving range versus how much does your position contribute? And of course, the other players behind you are going to matter to some degree as well. Um, one cool thing that happens when you have eight big blinds, like let's suppose you have eight and uh, the small blind and the big blind both have 30 versus if the small blind has 15. Um, you might actually get called more often by the small blind in that instance, because even though your stack is threatening them a little bit more when they only have 15 big blinds, also, they're risking less. So, like part of the problem for the small blind when they when they call your shove, like they could they had their hands where they could they could happily enough play against you for eight big blinds, but they still have the big blinds sitting back there covering them and threatening their entire stack. So the smaller the small blind stack is in that instance, the less they're risking against the big blind, even though they're not risking it against you because you're all in, there is still the risk of like once they, if they call with 30 big blinds and then the big blind reshoves, or if they shove with 30 big blinds and the big blind calls them, those are uglier situations for them. So one of the benefits of being a short stack, I mean, in general, of course, it's not good to be the short stack in these situations. But one thing you do have working for you is that ability to leverage the stack of other players behind you. Um, and so if, if there is like a big stack in the big blind, that can make it a little bit harder for the players uh, in the other seats, like in the button or the small blind, a little harder for them to call you because they're not just risking your stack. They're also risking running into the, the big blind with a hand. Right. Uh, thank you, Mackenzie. Our next question is from Mark. This hand comes from a two cent or five cent fast fold game on ignition. It fast folds to me in a small blind with jacks. I have 100 big blinds. The villain in the big blind covers. I open to 15 cents. The villain three bets to 45 cents. I consider jamming for $5, but instead I four bet to $1.15, planning to call a shove, thinking the villain will do this with enough lower pairs to make that better than just shoving myself. Um, so up until this point, I think it's probably, yeah, I, I don't think I would, I don't think you really want to have a range for just jamming $5 over a 45 cent three bet. Um I like the idea of, uh, and I think you're considering the right factors in terms of whether you're going to, or even if you were going to have that range, like which hands would go better into like a, a smaller four betting range. And it is the hands where you can induce action from hands you want to induce action from, which might include lower pocket pairs. It could also include something like ace five suited. You're such a big favorite against those hands that you'd rather have them shove for $5 than fold for, um, than fold if you shove for, for $5. And that's not true of something like ace queen or king queen. Those hands have good enough equity against you that you'd rather make them fold. So I like the way you're thinking about this. I think you made the right choice to make it a dollar fifteen. Uh, anything you want to add to the preflop action, Carlos? 
Um, I will just add that Mark played this game and we didn't. <laughs> and so I'm going to take his advice that this player is three betting small pairs because I don't see that against most of the people I play against. Um, but uh, with that read, then, of course, everything you said is uh, uh, very solid that we want to be four betting against this. I would say most of the players I play against, especially in low – well, I don't play low stakes on Ignition anymore, but honestly, high stakes tournaments on Ignition are probably the same quality player type as low stakes cash games on Ignition. I don't see a lot of three bet bluffing here um, too light. So I honestly would probably just call the three bet as opposed to four betting. Even blind versus blind. You'll be surprised, man. I am surprised, surprised, man. And, and maybe, maybe it's a cash thing, a cash game thing. I can guarantee you people don't three bet often enough um, blind versus blind in tournaments on ignition at least. But maybe if this were a, a hundred NL cash game, I would say, okay, I, I get it. But 5NL, I don't think people are three betting like sixes in this spot. But maybe I'm wrong. I don't play in these games. Mark does, so I'm going to take his word for it. Okay, the villain in this case calls the four bet. We go to the flop of the stack to pot ratio of about two, and the flop is ace of clubs, jack of hearts, eight of hearts. Our hero says, uh, I bet $1 targeting an ace. Carlos, where did he go wrong? I don't think. <laughs> I don't think. Um, what's the pot size here before I answer? Uh, $2.30. And we started with $5. So SPR is two here. Well, he said that. Duh. Um, in theory, this bet is probably too big. But in practice, I don't think it matters because... Clearly, I sound, I'm pretty skeptical that this guy is going to have anything other than like Ace-King uh, or like Queens Plus. And if he has Ace-King, he's going to pay off this bet, I guess. And honestly, the the entitlement tilt gets people. So like, I feel like he'll call his bet even with Kings. So I think this bet is too big in theory, but I don't mind it as an exploit. Yeah, that's fair. The The reason why I think it's too big in theory, or like I sort of like where I think thought process wise, uh, this person has gone wrong is in targeting an ace. And the reason I say that is that I think an ace is such a strong hand that at this point, like once you see the flop with an SPR of two, I think you're getting stacks from an ace no matter what you do. So you don't need to target an ace. But so like, and I think this is a, a general misunderstanding of the idea of of targeting. It's not just about like naming what is the hand that or what is a hand that is likely to pay you off or something. It's about trying to figure out of all the different hands that could pay you off, which one should you pay the most attention to and why. Uh, and in this case, the answer is not an ace. Many times the answer would be an ace. If we had a much higher SPR, the answer would be an ace because it wouldn't be trivial to just get stacks in against an ace. When the SPR is this low, um, you often have to set a pretty low value target or slow play. Like slow playing is often more correct with a lower stack to pot ratio because you are you no longer have the concern about growing the pot. Right? The, the pot is grown. The, the pot is already large. <laughs> so that's you don't have to worry about like, how am I going to get money in, into this pot? So yeah, I mean, I don't know that it's going to make a huge difference in this case, but like I would either start with a check or start with a very, very, very small bet. And it varies in this case might be like a fifth of the pot or something. Um, you know, like there's just, there's no need to bet a dollar. Uh, 
all you're doing is, is unnecessarily giving the villain an opportunity to get away from some of the weaker hands that might pay off a ledger. Uh, sorry, that, that might um might put money in if you you know if they can convince themselves into thinking that you're weak because you you checked or because you bet small or something like maybe you induce a bluff raise, maybe you induce some some lighter calls. I'm not saying any of those things are likely. I'm just saying it's a free roll to try because right. we're gonna um we're gonna get a stack from the nace no matter what. So we don't have to be in a mindset of like, how do I get all the you know money in ASAP against an ace, which which would be the mindset if you were deeper. Yeah, this is new for me. Um not the idea of like because uh, this is what happens to me as someone who has built his game around beating bad players is that I almost I'm almost never in the situation uh, because I get three bets so tight that I don't find a spot to four bet and just get called in very many situations unless it's all in. But when you have that sort of action, then it opens up the box where you do have to start considering um weaker value targets because your primary targets are just kind of they kind of play themselves um yeah this is like you know having this low like i don't get to play low sprs in these sort of situations as often so this is kind of a brand new thought for me and i like new thoughts so this is uh <laughs> this is great man like i would have never thought about it the way you just laid it out but that's gonna improve my game a good amount or uh, maybe not because i don't i'm i mean i'm not gonna all of a sudden start playing 100 big blind cash games just because i know this but if i happen to get 100 bigs in a tournament one day <laughs> i'll keep this sort of thing in mind this is great awesome um our hero bets the one dollar and the villain calls the turn is the queen of hearts there's now four dollars and nine cents in the pot and um 282 in the effective stacks what do you want to do now okay so this one i know <laughs> uh what i would do here being uh a mediocre poker player is i would just jam but i do know that solvers tend to get really like cheeky with the small bets for like it is basically doing the um I'll say generally it wants to do the geometric bet sizing thing, but maybe not when this flush draw and straight draw gets there. I don't know how that changes things, but what I would expect a solver to do is bet small here in order to jam river. But being the fish I am, I'm probably just going to jam turn. And I think that works out well exploitively, but I, I'm guessing that's not what a solver would do. Yeah, that, that sounds pretty reasonable to me. I, I think you're, you're probably right about what a solver would do. The main point that I want to make, or you know, why I'm I'm emphasizing this, because our um, our hero actually checks, which I also actually don't mind at this point. And he says, you know, checks obviously pun into to call a shove, but I think that like I think he's on the right track in terms of like I just think the flop was the time to do it. You know, if because what's happened by betting the flop, you've already enabled your opponent to get away from a lot of their weaker hands. So like the reason to, to I guess, to check and call would be to try to induce mm -hmm. bluffs, but for your opponent to bluff, they would have had to have called the flop with a weak hand in the first place. Like if you're trying to get paid off by an ace, you're better off making the bet yourself. I mean, there's a decent chance the ace is going to bet anyway, but like they have more incentive to call your bet than they have to make a bet themselves. Um, whereas a, a weak hand is that's really the main hand that wouldn't be able to call a shove from you, but might shove if you like, 
checked and, and give them rope to to bluff with. So like that really would be the, the reason. And and then like I think if you're gonna if you're gonna do that, that's why you want to start with your slow play on the flop rather than like making, I would argue, actually a fairly strong bet on the flop and then trying to represent weakness by checking the turn is yeah. even if your opponent like wants to pounce on that weakness, it's too late. They've already folded a lot of their worst hands. Yeah, and I should say that I kind of took that into account without explicitly saying it. The fact that we bet so big on a flop and got caught makes me think that the turn is a spot, like it doesn't make sense to check to induce a bluff um, at at this point. I think the guy just has an ace, um, and I'm hoping hoping this flush draw doesn't scare him away. Or maybe he has like ace king with a a heart or something, and he's not going to fold. I just feel like, I feel like, once he calls, first of all, once he three bets and then calls a four bet and then calls a big bet on this flop, I think the bottom of his range is like ace king. Mm-hmm. And I think these people are not good enough to fold those sort of hands. So that, that's kind of why I want to jam turn. Uh, if the SPR was lower, maybe I would get a little bit tricky, more tricky because so much stuff got there where ace king can maybe get spooked. But once they put in this much of their stack, I don't even think they fold Ace King without a heart. Yeah, I agree with that. But they may not shove Ace King. Like if I'm the villain, I got like yeah, I really they're definitely most, not shoving. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. it's it's really not a very good board for Ace King at this point. So like letting them check behind Ace King is actually quite bad for you. And it's not so much the danger of Ace King drawing out on you, although that's there. Really, the danger is just not getting Ace King stack. Like maybe the river is another scary card for for the Ace King, and they actually fold to your shove. Um, which is what happened. I mean, I don't know that the villain had ace king, but uh, the villain did check behind on the turn. And then uh, the river brought the three of clubs. So final board, ace of clubs, jack of hearts, eight of hearts, queen of hearts, three of clubs. Um, you know, that's a quite safe river, but the river could have been a fourth heart, you know, and, and then it's harder for you to um, to get called by, you know, an ace king kind of hand or even two pair might not call you once the river is a fourth heart. Uh, our hero shoves, which I think at this point is, is correct. And the villain... Folds. But yeah, bottom line is if you're you want to either commit to slow playing to target weak hands or fast playing to target medium strength hands. And once you commit to one, I think you're better off following through on it rather than like starting the flop with a fast play and then shifting to like slow playing on the turn. That's so good. And I got I got two friends who came on this poker trip with me to Cherokee, and one of them really needs to hear this. <laughs> this sounds like the sort of hand that he would do on this turn, and I really, really want him to listen to this episode to <laughs> know that you gotta, they're not going to do the betting for you. Yep. Uh, thank you for the question. Was that Mark? Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay, our next question comes from Rob, who played this in a uh, tournament with 45 to 50 people remaining. Uh, we're well into the money, so 90 people got paid initially. Um, $78,000 is the first prize. The current payout is $1,200. Um, and this is at my old stomping grounds. The uh, No, I'm sorry, it's not. This is at Rivers, Philadelphia, which is a newer casino. Rivers, Pittsburgh was my old stomping grounds. Uh, 15K, 30K, 30K level. The action folds to the hero who has a little over a million hands, a million chips to start the hand. Um, so a little over 30 big blinds. Our hero opens to 70K with queen nine suited in the cutoff. So far, so good. Yep. 
action falls to the villain who calls and rob says i've been at the table with villain most if not all of day two one of the better more aggressive players at the table probably one of the two players i respected most he was opening a lot of pots doing plenty of calling and three betting in late position and defending his big blind often flop is nine of hearts eight of spades three of hearts our hero again has queen nine of spades. There is 185k in the pot, and we flopped top pair with, uh, I guess, a backdoor flush draw and a backdoor straight draw. Villain checks. Hero C bets 75k. So 75 into, was it one, um, 185, I think I said? How do you like that size? Um, feels like a mistake to me. Feels like. You can go one or two ways here. Uh, if you think this guy, well, this is what I do as an exploit. If I think this guy's over aggressive, sometimes I will bet small here to induce bluff raises, but that is an exploit. I think the theory suggests on this sort of board, you should use a bigger size and more like two thirds. And this is where I really try to listen and decipher what by what people mean when they say they're up against a good player what because because a lot of times what people really mean when they say that is someone who's over aggressive which in my <laughs> opinion isn't necessarily good so if the guy is over aggressive i'm betting smaller if he's actually good and i'm going to try to approach gto versus him in this spot then i think the best size should be bigger yeah. Um, and the, the, like the way I've heard this situation explained, this might have even been from you, <laughs> uh, for like why these small card boards tend to prefer larger CBET sizes is that you do have a lower CBETing frequency, right? As the preflop raiser, you have a lot of unpaired overcards on a board like this one, and you really can't justify just CBETing 100% against a good player. You just, you can't, um, defend very well against a check raise when you do that. So you end up having to check behind a lot of your unpaired overcards. And then when you are betting, you have a more polar betting range. And the other reason why you prefer this large size is exactly because of hands like Queen Nine. You know, this is a great hand on this flop, a hand that's strong enough to play for stacks on this flop. On most turns, this will not be a great hand. On most turns, this will be second pair. There might also be some kind of you know, straight or something that's possible on the board. So, like, this is the best opportunity to get money in with this hand. Um, and, you know, if you were going to bet something like King Queen, you'd want to use a small size here. But since you're not really betting that kind of hand, then you can be more polar with your bets and um, and use a bigger size. And then, just, you know, stuff like Queen Nine or Pocket Tens that really want to get money in early but while they're still strong hands. Um, you can do that with us. Yeah, I'm, I'm guessing. Well, obviously, you can um, take different approaches. But if you were going to try to use a simple, a simplified approach here. I'm guessing you probably wouldn't use a small bet ever. So basically you would just use a big bet with a polarized range, like hands that you don't mind. Um, I was going to say fold into a raise, but you're not going to get raised too often if you bet big. Basically, a lot of the hands that that I'm not happy about that I might want to bet small with here would just become checks. And then the ones that, you, you know, I get King Queen is a good hand to like bet big with because if I get raised, I don't mind folding it. And if I get called, it has decent equity against the hands that would call me. Uh, so I would rather put King Queen in a big betting range than a small betting range. Um, well, so the, the reason why you might put it in a small betting range is that there, like, there's a fair chance King Queen is the best hand, right? Like it, it's, yeah. you're not, um, so. I guess it's more, it just becomes more of like a pushing equity. But if you get check raised, you just fold it, right? 
Yeah, that's kind of why you don't don't bet it at all. Yeah, yeah. So I think the small bet is just going to encourage the check raises, which is why I really like it with good hands when I'm up against over aggressive players because they're going to overdo it with the check raises. Uh, me included. <laughs> I'm the type of player that would attack a small bet on this sort of board. So maybe um, um, King Queen just doesn't fit in either of the betting ranges. Maybe that's a hand that just rather check back and preserve its equity. Yes. Um, and that, but that, you know, that's against better players, against weaker players. Right. Who you can just see that small and they don't check raise enough. Yeah. Uh, in this case, though, we do get check raise. We've got 75K. Um, this person check raises to 200K. And Rob says, uh, I think there are so many draws he could be doing with. I unblock hearts and, um, uh, draws like Jack 10 and seven, six, my hand is almost definitely best right now, but pretty vulnerable. Um, if called, I can also improve to straights and flushes on certain runouts. And yeah, I agree. Like this is the sort of hand that wants to shovel money in. I would even say it's not impossible. The villain is check raising a worse top pair. Um, stuff like 10, nine and Jack nine would be reasonable check raises from them. Um, so yeah, I, I do think this is a shove. It's, it is a hand where, you know, like I was saying, it's, it's very strong. Now, if you call, you're not going to feel so good about putting money in on most turns so better to get it in now while you have the opportunity yep yep you can definitely get called by worse um pairs even like some hard draws might call which you know is not as nice as getting called by a pair but we're probably ahead of, of some of them and what we don't want to see is a uh turn card here so put it in and hope for the best and I think we got the best. The villain folded to Rob's shove. And, you know, part of the, the thing about Queen Nine is even even though, I mean, presumably the villain was bluffing, like I don't think he folded a better hand or a hand that he was raising for value, but um, we still benefit from making his bluff fold because there's a fair chance his yeah. bluff had equity against you. Uh, now, if he had not very much equity and he was going to barrel no matter what the turn is, like you could, if you had a really good read that this person was over aggressive, you could just like close your eyes and plan to call them down on basically any turn. But that's not the default, right? The default is you can make them fold equity. Many turns are going to be scary for you. So, you know, like I might consider slow playing if I had aces or had a set or something that you know, I wasn't so worried about the turn card. Then I would be interested in keeping the bluffs in. But this is a hand that like really benefits from even from getting the bluffs out. It's like it's not for as far as worst case scenarios go, like shoving it and having the person fold a hand with equity that could potentially bluff us out later. That's not at all a bad outcome. So I think uh, very well done, Rob. Yeah. So like a hand like Queen Jack of Spades, for example, like do we, we don't block that, do we? Uh, I can't remember what our hand is, but let's assume we don't block Queen Jack of Spades. That's a hand that nines really wants to get out of there, but aces doesn't. Yeah. So if I have aces, I'm just calling and giving this guy rope, giving this guy rope. But with nines, I'm getting it. With a nine, I'm getting it in. Yeah, that's a great example. He actually did have the queen of spades here, but I know that's not you know your your point stands irrelevant of that. Right. Uh, so thank you, Rob, and thank you, everyone, for, um, well, I mean, in particular, I guess, thank you to everyone who's submitted hands. Obviously, even we got through more than I thought we would today, but yeah. we still definitely have not gotten through it, nor are we going to get through um, every hand that's sent in uh, by the $5 tier subscribers, but I'm happy that we could get to, to some of them, and we appreciate all of your support regardless. Uh, once again, if you are not already a member of the Patreon, www.patreon.com slash thinking poker daily and you could get one of these little segments honestly something probably a little longer than on average what we were doing today you yeah. get uh one of those every day so you can listen to it on your commute or you can uh, stockpile them and just you know get a <laughs> get an hour of andrew and carlos anytime you feel like it 
Also, you don't have to wait seven months like these guys did. <laughs> <laughs> this was great, man. Uh, we should probably do this like, you know, every couple of months or so uh, like this. I feel like I learned a lot doing these back to back like this. So, yeah, this is great. Yeah, I agree. I, I would like to do this more often. All right. Take care, everyone.